Well, 42 teaching lessons. I mean, come on, there's four chapters in Philippians. I mean, <laughs> it just takes a while to go through four chapters in a book, but uh, that was a great joy for me to be able to exposit and expound the book of Philippians, and I would certainly commend Philippians to you. Well, the topic that has been assigned to me for tonight is the topic of total depravity. So I have a few devotional thoughts that I want to leave with you <laughs> on total depravity. Um, it's also the title of my new biography that's coming out, The Life and <laughs> Wait a minute. Not autobiography. No, it's The Life and Times of Bob, Bob Godfrey. <laughs> <laughs> from the glo- from glory to the grave. So, <laughs> so yeah. When my wife saw what my topic was, she said, "Why do they always ask you to preach these hard messages?" And uh, so I I do. I embrace this, and so I want to preach to you tonight on total depravity, and it is critically important that we understand what this doctrine is because it affects every aspect of ethics and morality. So I hope you have a Bible with you because you're going to need to use your Bible tonight, so go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Romans. And you'll want to keep it open, and we're going to spend our time tonight, uh, the vast majority of our time in the book of, of Romans And I want to begin by reading a couple of verses as a launching point for us tonight as we think about total depravity. In Romans chapter 5, and beginning in verse 12, as the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, he writes this, beginning in verse 12, "'Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world.'" Let me repeat that. Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. And sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. It's been well said that a right diagnosis is half the cure. And so we ask the question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with people? What is wrong with the human race? Because something is obviously desperately wrong as our world is unraveling like a cheap sweater. We see all around us war and strife and envy and conflict and murder and and lying. And most people look in all the wrong places to try to diagnose the problem. They claim that the problem is on the outside of man, that the problem is the environment, 
The problem is the government. The problem is the economy. The problem is global warming. The problem is your upbringing, your disadvantages, etc., etc., etc. But you and I know that there is no cure for a spiritual problem to be found in politics or in finance. All of these explanations fall short of where the real problem lies, and the fundamental problem of man and the world and the human race lies not outside of man, but on the inside of man, and in one word, it is sin. So what is sin? Well, sin is any lack of conformity to the holiness of God. Sin is any transgression of the law of God. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. Sin is going astray from the will of God. And this is man's greatest problem. And in order to grasp the magnitude of what is wrong with everyone and everything, we need to understand the magnitude of sin. So, this necessitates that we are well taught in three major doctrines, and these will be the three headings that I'll have for us tonight. Number one, the doctrine of original sin. Number two, the doctrine of total depravity. And number three, the doctrine of universal guilt. These three are interrelated and interwoven, and these three doctrines are so well addressed in the book of Romans. So, I want us to note, first of all, the doctrine of original sin. And I direct us back to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, because original sin is that first sin of Adam and its effect upon the entire human race, bringing sin to the entire human race and death to the entire humanity. And so, we read in verse 12, just as through one man. We know who this one man is. His name is Adam. His name is mentioned twice in verse 14. And Adam will become the the, the channel, the, the, the passageway by which sin will enter into the world. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. Adam's one sin, his one transgression, sin, entered the world like a, like a, a floodgate had, had been opened up, and, and, and sin came pouring into the human race through the one act of disobedience by Adam. And please note it says sin in the singular, not sins in the plural, because the emphasis here is upon the, the presence of sin and the power of sin, and the pollution of sin, and the principle of sin, this all came into the human race, and from it came the plurality of sins. You'll also note that sin entered into the world. It did not originate with Adam. Satan had already felled in his cosmic rebellion against God in, in heaven, And when he disobeyed, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so, with sin, there is always death. And God had said in Genesis 2, verse 17, "...in the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die." And the moment he disobeyed God, 
not only did sin enter the human race, but death entered as well. There was an immediate death for Adam, a spiritual death. But with that spiritual death, there would eventually come physical death, and were it not for the grace of God, there would be eternal death. And so, Adam opened the door to sin, and sin opened the door to death. And so, we read in verse 12, so death spread to all men. It spread like a malignant cancer, and it spread to every human being in the human race, beginning at the moment of conception. And then he adds, because all sinned. And at the moment that Adam sinned, his offense, his sin was imputed to every person that would ever be conceived in their mother's womb. And so, when did you become a sinner? Over 6,000 years ago, Adam's sin was charged to your account, and long before you were conceived and long before you entered into this world, you were already condemned and you were already under the wrath of God, and you were already a sinner. This imputation of Adam's sin, it was immediate. It took place to the entire human race once and for all at that point. It was comprehensive. It went to every member of the human race. It was realistic in the sense that we were charged as though we ourselves had committed that sin, It was fatal in that it brought death, and it was representative in the sense that the one man acted on behalf of the many. And this is reinforced five more times here in Romans chapter 5 in the following verses, and I want to let your eye go down the page from verse 15 to verse 19, and I want you to see verse 15 where it says, by the transgression of the one, the many died. Adam's one transgression brought death to the entire human race. Verse 16, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, the divine punishment and judgment of God on the entire human race. Verse 17, we read, by the transgression of the one, death reigned. And death reigned like a cruel tyrant and has ruled over the human race from the time of Adam's sin. It's appointed in a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. In verse 18, we read in Romans 5, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. And so, eternal condemnation and eternal punishment was declared by God against every member of the human race long before they were conceived or born. And then in verse 19 we read, through the one man's disobedience, referring to Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners because his sin was imputed to every person, and we were charged as guilty before God before we entered the human race. This is the doctrine of imputation, that the action of one man is regarded as the actions 
of the many others. And it is based upon the principle of federal headship that the action of a representative head would affect all those whom he represents. And Adam was our representative head, and his actions would be accredited to us and would be imputed to us. And so, his one act has condemned the entire human race to the end of the age, till the last person is conceived in the womb. And this speaks volumes of the holiness of God, that just one sin would condemn the entire human race, just one sin by one man, and the entire future population of the world stood judged and condemned before God. That's how holy God is. And that is how sinful one act of rebellion against this holy God is taken seriously by Almighty God. One sin by one man and the entire human race condemned. So, Adam opened the floodgate of sin and death around the world to every tribe, to every tongue, to every people, to every nation, to every continent. And you want to know what's wrong with the world? You want, to want, you want to know what's wrong with mankind? The answer is original sin. But this leads us now to the second major doctrine, and it is the doctrine of total depravity. And so I want you, while you're in Romans, turn back to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, because not only was Adam's sin imputed, credited, to every person of the human race, but the sin nature of Adam has been transmitted to us in the moment of conception. The sin nature of Adam has been passed down from parent to child, parent to child, and you inherited that sin nature. So, beginning in verse 9, Paul will give really what is the quintessential signature text on total depravity. And just by way of introduction, before we work our way through these verses, total depravity means that the totality of human nature has been corrupted, poisoned, and polluted by sin. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, every inch and every ounce of every person born into this world has had sin like a, a fatal poison flooding through their soul. The mind of every person has been darkened so they cannot see or understand the truth. The heart of every person has been defiled so that they do not love the truth they love what they should hate, and they hate what they should love. And the will of every person is dead and in bondage to sin and cannot believe the gospel in and of themselves. And so, beginning in verse 9, it's an incredible scene. And let me just set this up because the scene is a courtroom scene. And the entire human race is standing 
trial before God. And God is judge and jury and prosecutor. And Paul is like a courtroom reporter, and the defendants are the entire human race. And unconverted mankind is without an advocate. And the evidence is submitted. And the evidence is found in God's Scripture, the Old Testament. And the verdict is indisputable. It is the condemnation of the entire human race, and there will be no defense offered by mankind, and there is no appeal to a higher court. So beginning in verse 9, here is the charge. Paul begins in verse 9, what then? In other words, he is saying, what more can I say? Because this section began in chapter 1, verse 18, when he writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And throughout the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, now coming into chapter 3, verse 9, he says, what, what more can I say? He, 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 he has built an indisputable case of the condemnation of every man and every woman under the wrath of God. So he says, what then? Are we better than they? And the we refer to Paul and the believers who were in Rome, and the they refer to those who are yet outside of Christ. Are we of better stock? Did we have a better nature? Were we more spiritual than they? And he says, not at all, unequivocally no, for we have already charged, and that's a legal term, of an indictment of a crime and to be found guilty. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that covers the entire human race, are under sin. All mankind is under the penalty of sin. All mankind is under the power of sin and the pollution of sin. All mankind is enslaved and dominated by sin. And so now, beginning in verse 10 and extending through verse 18, Paul now presents a devastating indictment against the entire human race that is outside of Jesus Christ. And in reality, this is God's case. This isn't Paul's case. This is God's case against humanity. So he says in verse 10, as it is written... And the word written there signals that he will be bringing Old Testament Scripture to bring to bear in building his case. There will be eight Old Testament texts from Psalms, from Isaiah, and from Ecclesiastes, and he quotes from the Old Testament to show that what he is saying is nothing new, that this has been the condition of the human race since the dawn of human history throughout all of the epics and eras of Old Testament times, now coming into New Testament times, this has always been God's case against humanity. And so he begins in verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. That serves as something as a, a topic sentence over everything that will follow. It's an umbrella term that spans everything else that will be said that none can meet the divine standard 
none measure up to the holiness and the moral perfection of Almighty God that the entire human race has been weighed in the balances and found wanting. This is a devastating case. And in verse 11, he talks about the mind of every person, the understanding of, of, of every person. There is none who understands, because every unbeliever lives in spiritual darkness. And they are spiritually blind, they live in spiritual darkness, and they have a veil over their, over their eyes. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, for the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually appraised. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it says, the God of this age has, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. No, no matter how clearly and precisely we may present the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, they cannot understand it. They cannot see with eyes or of understanding because their minds have been unplugged and are in total darkness. He says in verse 11, there is none who understands. And then he says, there is none who seeks for God. The reason that they do not seek for God is because they do not understand their condition before God and how they have been weighed in the balances and are under the, the wrath of God already. So he says, there's none who seeks for God. They're all running away from God. R.C. Sproul used to say, in a seeker church, the only person who would show up would be God. <laughs> because there is none who seeks for God. I mean, there it is. And he explains it because their heart is defiled and they do not desire the truth. They do not desire God. They may desire the blessings that would come from God, but they just do not want God Himself. They're running away from God. And then verse 12, he says, all have turned aside. And they have gone in the wrong direction. They are on the wrong path. They're headed to the wrong destiny. And then he says, together they have become useless. And the word together just lumps the entire human race together. They become useless. The word means worthless, of, of no value in their current state of total depravity. It says there is none who does good. There is none who is morally excellent. There is none who is morally upright. And then to be emphatic, he adds, not even one. There is no exception to this. Not even the, the kindest grandmother who is outside of Christ. She, she does not meet the standard. She does not measure up. And then Paul moves to the throat in this total depravity. He says their throat is an open grave. In other words, what is down in the heart comes up through the throat and will eventually come out of the mouth and be spoken by the lips but what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And what is down in the heart comes up through the throat, and it says their throat is an open grave. This is awful. Graves are to be closed because 
when the corpse is put into the grave, the decaying process begins, and with the decaying process, there, there soon comes the stench and the, and the odor that comes from the decay, and then soon it begins to rot and it begins to reek, and there are worms that then produce maggots, and, and it's a, a detestable sight. And so, their, their throat is an open grave, and every time their mouth opens, there is this stench of death that comes out of their mouth. He says, as, as we continue to look at this, he, he, he says, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The, the deception here is that they lie. They pervert the truth. And then he says, with the lips, at the end of verse 13, the poison of a vast, which is a, a snake or a, a viper, the poison here referring to the, the venom that would be injected into the prey. The poison of ass is under their, their lips, and every time they open their mouth, they're like a snake that injects its fangs into the victim and then releases the, the, the venom and the poison that is deadly that brings extraordinary harm to everyone else. And this isn't Paul's estimation, and, and this isn't a, a theologian's estimation down through church history. This is God's Word, and this is God's case against humanity. Let God be found true. Let every man be found a liar. And then in verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursings, and bitterness, that their mouth is foaming and overflowing with, with cursings, which is intense hatred, and, and bitterness, which is open hostility. And then he says in the middle of verse 14, their feet. And so, he, ha- he has started with the head, and he has worked all the way down now to the feet, and, and he's covered the totality of a human soul with the metaphors of, of body parts. And at the end of verse, or in the middle of verse 14, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. They, they, they are anxious and ready to elevate themselves, to push others down, to unleash their ego upon others, and to shed blood is the, the ultimate harm that could be done to them, and they're not dragging their feet. They're, they're not shuffling their feet. They, they are swift. They are, they are running like a, a sprinter to carry out their dastardly deeds of, of destruction upon others. And then he says, destruction and misery are in their paths, that they leave a trail behind them of destruction and misery. Destruction refers to calamity and the harm that is done to others. And misery is the result of the destruction. Wherever there's destruction, it's always accompanied by misery. And it's in their paths where their feet have have taken them as they have run swiftly. This is God's indictment in the Supreme Court of Heaven 
brought against the entire human race. This is God's estimate of every person. And then in verse 17, in the path of peace, they have not known. They only know destruction and misery. They've never had one ounce of peace, one ounce of rest or calmness. They are always hyperactive to pursue more sin and more destruction. And then in verse 18, he concludes, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He comes back up to the head now. He started at the head, goes down to the feet. He now comes back up to the, the head where the eyes are. And, and Paul here is giving the profile of every person ever born into this world. Whether you were born in church, whether you're born in a Christian family, whether you were born with Christian influences around you, whether you were born and soon attending a Christian school, regardless of what was on the outside, it was this sewer that was bubbling up on the inside and spewing its depravity to the totality of your being, such that the mind, to use these words that Paul has pulled together, the mind, the heart, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the feet, the eyes are all poisoned and plagued with sin that has infiltrated the nature of every person as it has been passed down from Adam. And any other vantage point would just be a, a Pollyanna total denial of reality. And when you go back to your room tonight and when you turn on cable news or if you surf the internet, you will see Romans 3, 10 through 18 on steroids in every direction that you turn. And this is not an isolated indictment of, of humanity. In Genesis 6, verse 5, from the very beginning, way back in Genesis 6, verse 5, we read, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, sometimes I hear people say that the world is just getting worse and worse and worse. It was awful in the beginning. And God just wiped out everyone with a, a flood, except eight people in one little family that got on the ark. God just drowned and devastated men, women, boys, girls, children, infa infants, because they were all under the sentence of death from Almighty God. In Genesis 8, verse 21, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. He doesn't have to be taught to be evil. He came out of his mother's womb speaking lies, the psalmist says. 
In Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 3, and I'm reading from the Old Testament just to show that this has been the case against humanity from the very beginning. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts. You want to know why? Because sin will make you stupid. Sin will make you make the worst choices a person could possibly make. It is moral insanity to sin against God. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick Who can understand it? It's a rhetorical question, the answer of which is no one can even understand the depths of depravity and the evil that is lurking in the human hearts down deep on the inside. It's far worse than what any one of us could even begin to comprehend. And in Isaiah 1 and verse 5 and 6, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the feet, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. And again, it's the same imagery that Paul is using in Romans 3, from from the feet to the head, and every body part representing a different aspect of the human nature and the human soul, Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, there is nothing sound in it. It would be like taking a glass of water and you have uh, a thimble of cyanide and you pour it into the glass of water. That cyanide now permeates the whole glass of water such that there is death now in every sip of the water. And Adam's sin has been poured out into the human race like the poison of cyanide, and it has affected every aspect of human nature, of every person, in every generation, on every continent, born into this world. So, do you want to know what's wrong with Washington? It's total depravity. You want to know what's wrong with Hollywood? It's total depravity. You want to know what's wrong with the abortion mills and with transgender operations, with homosexuality and lesbianism and child abuse? You want to know what the problem is? The problem is the human heart. Do you want to know what is driving pornography and racism and anarchy in the streets and one country invading another country and slaughtering and killing innocent lives? There is only one answer, and it is total depravity. Man sins because man is a sinner and because he has a sin nature. So, this is the case that Paul has presented in in Romans chapter 3. And what I love about the Bible is the Bible is a straight-talking book. It tells it like it is. And this is the realistic estimate of the human race. So, we're ready for the verdict in the courtroom of heaven. In verse 19 and 20, we have the verdict. Paul has presented God's case, and now the gavel is ready to come down. 
And in verse 19, we read, now we know, and there's a note of certainty about this. Now we know with certainty that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And what the law says is three things. It's the holiness of God that is revealed in the law. It is the sinfulness of man that is exposed by the law. And it is the curse of sin, which is death. And so we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Well, that is every human being. Whether they have heard the law or have not heard the law, that law is written upon their heart, as Paul argued in Romans chapter 2. And so here's the result, so that every mouth may be closed. This is such an overwhelming slam dunk case that no sinner standing in the final judgment will even bother to offer an excuse by opening his mouth. There is no self-vindication that could be possibly offered against this airtight case of condemnation. There can be no self-justification, no offering of excuses to God. Every mouth may be closed because the case is so overwhelming. And at the end of verse 19, in all the world, all the world may become accountable to God, must answer to God must stand in the judgment before God, must hear the verdict that will come from God. And so verse 20, because by the works, by the works of the law, whatever man's attempts at self-righteousness, whether it be through his own efforts, whether it be through uh, a false religion, whether it would be through human philosophy, whether it would be through secular humanism, whether it would be through whatever attempt to meet a standard that they perceive that God would have, he says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No person anywhere on planet earth will be made right before God. And he adds, in his sight, meaning all that matters is what's in God's sight, not what is in man's sight. He says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so the law makes sin known, but the law cannot save. This is, this is God's case against humanity. This is God's case whether, again, you grew up going to church, whether you never darkened the door of a church. This is all flesh condemned by sin. So this leads now to the third and final doctrine the doctrine of universal guilt. 
And in Romans 3 and verse 23, here is the universal guilt and universal condemnation. He says, for all have sinned. It means every person in every place, in every generation, have sinned. It's in the aorist tense. It's translated as in the past, meaning throughout the entirety of your entire life, everything leading up to this moment, you have sinned. The word sin means to miss the mark, to err, to go wrong, to, to wander from the path. And all humanity has, has sinned. And then he says, and fall short, and he changes to the present tense. Not only have you sinned throughout the entirety of your life from the moment you came out of your mother's womb, but you continue to sin in the present, and you now fall short of the glory of God. And, and here are the scales, and your entire life is put into one dish of these scales, every thought, every deed, every word, every action, every reaction, the, the entirety of your life's record, every sin, every transgression, every iniquity is, is placed on, in this dish, and you are weighed in the balances, and on the other side of the scales in the other dish is not the, the average morality of the culture. It's not the sum and the substance of where people are. On the other side of the scales is placed the glory of God, the sum and the substance of all that God is, His holiness, His, His righteousness, the, the fullness of the eternal being of God, His intrinsic glory is placed on the other side of the scales, and our entire life is placed on the other side of the scales, and as we are weighed, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And this is universal guilt. And because of universal guilt, there is universal condemnation. And if you would turn back to Romans 1, verse 18, Romans 1, verse 18, this text that we could almost cite from memory. Paul writes, for the wrath of God. Stop right there. The word wrath is a Greek word, orge, that comes into the English language as orgy. Orgy is used in the negative sense of heated sexual passions, heavy breathing in erotic parties. But here, orge is used in the positive sense of God's heated anger against sin, that God is not a stoic sovereign, that, that, that God is not mildly indifferent to the transgressions of the human race, but the fierce, fiery, blazing passionate anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, that is, godless attitudes 
and unrighteousness that is godless actions. And Paul puts godliness, all ungodliness first because that's the attitude, the heart attitude, and coming out of the heart attitude is the unrighteousness. For the fierce, passionate, anger, heavy breathing of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is sinners in the hands of an angry God. And so Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So the death sentence hangs over the entire human race. The entire human race is perishing. The entire human race is on the broad path headed for destruction. The entire human race is rightly and justly the object of God's holy anger and wrath, and there will be the unleashing of the fury of His vengeance as the result of the final judgment, that this is total depravity. This is the devastating state of the human race and the condition of the fallen world in which we live. These are the only lenses that we can put before our eyes and have a Christian worldview and look around and see the state of humanity. And so the question is, is there any hope? And of course you know the answer is yes. That there would be one who would come who would be the second Adam. There would be one who would be the fulfillment of the type of Adam who would come into this world and be born of a woman, to be born of a virgin. He would be born under the law in where the first Adam disobeyed by eating of the forbidden fruit. The second Adam has obeyed God at every point. He has been tempted in, in all points such as we are, yet without sin. And He went to the cross, and He bore our sins, the sins of His people. He shed His blood. And He made the only propitiation there is for the fierce anger of God in the sinless life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He, he satisfied the vengeance of God towards those for whom He died, His people. And in His death, He, he, he bought us at the price of the gold and silver of His blood. And with that death, He set us free from our tyranny to sin, and He reconciled all those for whom He died to the Father, and reconciled the Father to them. He has established peace between God and those for whom He died, and He shed His blood to wash away all of their sins and to reverse the curse. And through the miracle of regeneration, he now gives a new mind that can understand it is the mind of Christ. 
He now gives a new heart, a heart of flesh that has a, a spiritual pulse for God, that, that loves God and desires the things of God. He, he is given a, a, a new will by which we now are released to obey God. We have new feet that, that run after God. We have new ears that now can hear the truth of God. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come, and it is through the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and in His sinless life and through the shedding of His blood that He has washed away our sins and He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. And there upon the cross, Jesus Christ, in giving His life unto death, shedding His blood to make the only atonement for our sins, he has purged the guilt of sin from us, and He has clothed us with His perfect righteousness, and we now are presented before the throne of grace, and we are found in full and perfect acceptance with God. But there is no good news until you know what the bad news is. And there is no amazing grace until you know the weighty condemnation that was once upon us. When I decided to ask my wife to marry me, I knew I needed to buy an engagement ring. And I went to a jeweler in downtown Dallas, and he brought me into the showroom and he began to pull diamonds out. And I looked at those diamonds, and there was nothing that really captured my eye. There was nothing that really drew my gaze to the diamonds. They, they all looked just so mundane. They looked so dull. And then he said, wait a minute. And he reached under the counter, and he put down a black velvet pad. And with those tweezers, he picked up a diamond and placed it on the black velvet pad. And every light in that entire showroom suddenly burst through that diamond. And that diamond literally exploded before my eyes as I could see the, the light refracting and shining through this diamond. What, what made the difference? Same diamond. It was the black velvet backdrop that caused the diamond to shine so brightly. And if you take away the doctrine of total depravity, in all of its fullness, you have diminished the glory of the cross. But when you see the blackness of sin and the death and the depravity of the human soul, and then you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, then you rejoice that God would have grace and mercy on a hell-bound sinner like me. 
So may we give glory and praise to God.